punishment and protection, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. When Marshal Foch, the head of the French military during the First World War, was shown the terms of the Treaty of Versailles that came out of the Paris Peace Conference, he said, this is not a treaty, this is an armistice for 20 years. He was convinced that this was going to cause another war. In the event, of course, he was right, there was another world war within 20 years. Was the Treaty of Versailles to blame? Before you can start looking at that question, you need to understand exactly what the terms of the treaty were, and that is what this podcast is all about. It is going to be very, very useful if you can have a map in front of you while you look at this. There is a map showing the territorial settlement of the Treaty of Versailles in the textbook. You have it in your notes, in your own book, and it's also the picture that accompanies this podcast that should be coming up on your phone now. If you have something like that to look at, you will find what is about to follow an awful lot easier. The basic aims of the Treaty of Versailles were based on the desires of Clemenceau, Lloyd George and Wilson. It's fair to say that of the three of them, Clemenceau more or less got more of what he wanted than the others. The basic function of the Treaty of Versailles could be said to punish Germany, to protect France and to repair the damage done by the war in Belgium and in France. And the basic terms of the treaty can be separated out into three headings. Land, military and war guilt. And we're going to deal with each of those separately. First, the land settlement. And this is the most complicated one. This is the one where you need the map. This is also the one where you need to actually learn quite a lot of names and places and numbers. Because when this comes up in an exam, you'll be expected to be able to deploy any of the facts and figures I'm about to give you in whatever way the question is asking for. So this is an area where you absolutely need to make sure that your notes are detailed. So firstly, Germany loses quite a lot of land in the west, that is, on the border near France. Firstly, Alsace and Lorraine is restored to France. This is a big deal because this is the land that was taken away from France by Germany at the end of the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. It has been a cause of friction between the two countries ever since. So this is a big deal for France. They've got Alsace and Lorraine back. The provinces of Eupen and Malmedy are given to Belgium after a plebiscite. Remember, a plebiscite is a vote of all of the people living in the country to see where they want to go. You can see this as an extension of the right of self-determination, something pushed very heavily by Wilson in his 14 points. Again, after a plebiscite, North Schleswig is transferred to Denmark. Now this next one is not anything to do with the plebiscite and it's also nothing to do with self-determination. The Saar coal fields are taken away from Germany and put under the control of the League of Nations for 15 years. And for that period of 15 years, France 
will take the coal that is produced by the Saar coal fields. After 15 years, there would be a plebiscite to see where those people wanted to go, whether they wanted to go to France or return to Germany. The key thing here is not so much the fact that it is part of the land settlement, but that this economically weakens Germany by taking the resources, the coal, but also the money generated by the industry that can run off that coal. So the loss of the Saar coal field in the West is quite a big deal. The biggest changes to Germany happen over in the East. Firstly, the country of Poland, which was destroyed in the 18th century, is restored. In order to put this country back together, a large chunk of land is taken away from Germany. And in order to give this new state of Poland the ability to actually access international trade, it needs access to the sea, specifically the Baltic Sea. In order to do this, a section of land, which becomes known as the Polish Corridor, is taken away from Germany and given to Poland, along with the port of Danzig. Now, the port of Danzig is made a free city. It's taken out of the ownership of any country and put under the control of the League of Nations. The problem is that Danzig has mainly, at this point, a German population. So to Germany it feels very much like this city has been taken away from them purely in order to give Poland access to the sea. The creation of the Polish Corridor also splits off East Prussia from the rest of Germany. They are now no longer connected. A little chunk of East Prussia is also taken away. This is the area known as Memel and this is given to Lithuania. So again there, a chunk of territory has been taken. Upper Silesia, likewise, is divided between Germany and Poland after another plebiscite. Everything that Germany took away from Russia in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is then taken away from them and is given in turn to Poland and also used to create three new countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. One of the other treaties also carves up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now this basically leaves two separate countries, Austria and Hungary, and the Austrians are ethnically and culturally German. It would therefore be quite natural to assume that these Austrian Germans would like to join with the rest of Germany into a single country. This union of the two countries is called an Anschluss and the treaty specifically forbids this from happening. Again, this is a protection thing for France. They want to keep Germany small. They do not want Germany to expand. And by forbidding the Anschluss, they deny Germany the natural resources and the manpower that would come with Austria. Finally, and possibly most outrageously of all, all of Germany's overseas colonies are taken away from Germany and just divided up amongst the victorious powers. And that's just theft. That's very simply just taken away and given to the victors. So that is the land settlement. You've got something in the east and you've got something in the west. In all cases, these things weaken Germany by removing chunks of the population 
and by removing large areas of land. But in some cases, they also help protect France. The next main area is in military restrictions. And this is relatively simple. Germany has always had a very proud military tradition. They've had the best trained and best equipped army. In order for France to feel safe, they want that military stripped away. So the terms of the treaty are quite clear. The army is limited to 100,000 men only. Conscription, that is forcing everybody to be a member of your army, is forbidden. At the same time, they are also told they cannot have any tanks or aircraft. This is basically ensuring that Germany cannot build a modern military, taking advantage of the technological innovations that have come in during the First World War. The Navy, now this is a big point for Britain of course, the Navy is limited to only 15,000 men and they are only allowed to have six battleships. And possibly most important of all to Britain is Germany is not allowed to have any submarines at all. Remember how close Germany came to starving Britain into submission during the war with a submarine blockade. They were within six weeks of starvation. With that in mind, it is no surprise that Britain has ensured that Germany is not allowed to have any submarines anymore. Finally, the Rhineland, the area of Germany which borders onto France, is demilitarised. That means that although it's still part of Germany, although it's still part of their country, no German troops or weapons or armoured cars or anything is allowed to be within 50 kilometres of the River Rhine. The idea is that Allied troops will stay in this area for 15 years. That's, again, in order to protect and make France feel safe. In the event those troops do not stay there all the time, they're all pulled out by 1930, mainly because nobody can afford to keep them there in the Great Depression. The last section of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles is the vexed idea of war guilt. The idea of who is to blame for the war. Clause 231 of the Treaty of Versailles states that the war was entirely the fault of Germany and her allies and also ensures that Germany accepts responsibility for causing all of the loss and damage to which the allies have been subjected as a result of the war. Now this is very important because, as you know, the question of who was to blame for the war is slightly more complicated than simply saying it was entirely down to Germany and her allies. But more importantly, by getting Germany to accept responsibility for the war and for all the loss and damage caused, the allies can now look for restitution. They can now look for repayment. They can now look for reparations. And Germany has to agree to make reparations to the Allies, to pay for the cost of the war. At this point, it's a blank check. The treaty simply says that the sum will be dealt with later. It will be calculated later, because the sum is going to be difficult to calculate. Germany is forced to sign this treaty without knowing the exact sum they are signing for. The Reparations Commission is set up and it reports in 1921 and reparations are set at an absolutely 
eye-watering 6.6 billion pounds with 42 years to pay. That is a phenomenal amount of money by any standards, but in 1920 it's catastrophic. And we will discuss another time the effect that that has on Germany and the German economy. So that overall is the shape of the Treaty of Versailles. You need to understand all of those things, why they're there, the effect they have, and who wanted them. You also need to be able to think about in what ways those are fair and in what ways they're not fair. In the next podcast, we'll talk about Germany's response to the Treaty of Versailles and how they felt about having this imposed upon them. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.